Good afternoon, KZMU listeners in Moablandia and the world at large. This is Lisa, your host of Great Wide Open, one of our public affairs shows, which airs every second Monday of the month at 4 p.m. on KZMU and is available, like all our public affairs show, available for streaming on the website or wherever you get your pods a couple days after this airs. This show is pre-recorded like most of our shows, so we won't be able to take your calls up at the studio. But if you have any questions or comments about this or any other show or any suggestions, please feel free to hit me up at kzmugwo at gmail.com. But let's get into today's show. It's uh, July. Well, it's actually June, but it will be July by the time you folks out there hear that. And my guest today is Andrew Bisharat, who is a renowned writer and pontificator and podcast host, primarily in the world of climbing. And we're going to have a little conversation about media and new media and social media and how it has affected negatively and positively how we consume and produce content for uh, what was previously kind of underground sports like skateboarding or mountain biking or rock climbing. And as you KZMU listeners know, it doesn't take long, maybe like every other show, for me to get back to climbing because that's what I do. I'm a climber. Andrew's a climber. So we'll probably be focusing on climbing during this conversation, but you can um, extrapolate that it would be similar for Ah, disc golf or skateboarding or whatever your favorite outdoor recreation activity is. Andrew, welcome to Great Wide Open. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. And um, fun fact, I have been on a podcast with you before. You are the host of the Run Out podcast with Chris Calouse, who is the host of the Normal Cast. So the climbing fans out there might be um, familiar with your content. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, I am a writer, um, classically, I guess, and uh, but have branched off into things like podcasting. Um, but I've been writing about rock climbing for, you know, over 20 years now. I was formerly the editor or one of the editors at Rock and Ice magazine um, for about nine years. I, um, I run a, a website called Evening Sends, where I share my own writing as well as other writing that I curate uh, within the climbing space, and um, and I, I do this podcast now called The Runout with with Calouse, and we've had uh, wonderful guests such as yourself and many other climbers from all different backgrounds, um, where we you know we kind of talk about the issues of the day in in climbing. So um, it's sort of a multimedia type of existence. Um, that I'm putting together as a freelancer and um, yeah, just trying to, trying to make it work, trying to, um, you know, steer interesting and deep conversations around rock climbing, which I, which I love most. I'm right there with you. And I think uh, one of the things that you and I both share an opinion about is that um, deep conversations or complicated conversations um, I mean, I know we're talking about outdoor recreation, so we're going to take with a grain of salt that um, we're not we're not saving the world. We're not doing, you know, we're not curing cancer or anything. We're 
outdoor enthusiasts who love what we're doing. And I'd like to think it makes us better people because we are out there doing what we love. Um, and as media has progressed from somewhat more traditional forms of media to the current landscape of um, gratis amedius dopamine media, it seems like you and I both share that opinion that those deeper and more nuanced conversations or more in-depth digs into what's going on in our sports have kind of, they're slipping away. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, it certainly feels like there's shorter attention spans. Um, our, our attention is being distracted in a million different directions. And, um, and so it's hard to really focus on on these kind of deep dives. I mean, climbing's a sport where uh, there's a rich literary history that goes back hundreds of years um, to people writing about mountaineering exploits and conquests and, um, you know, the 19th centuries and so forth. Um, and so I think climbing's sort of a unique sport that insofar as, you know, it has that rich literary tradition, which something like disc golf or skateboarding maybe doesn't quite have, have that same, um, you know, context. And so um, it's, I think especially, uh, it's an especially poignant sport to look at in terms of how these kinds of conversations um, take place and how we ingest um, media around them, how we, how we read, you know, narratives and trip reports and stories about um, what this sport is and what it means to you. Um, and uh, and so today, that's a, a lot of that's taking place on social media. There's um, fewer avenues and outlets for people to buy printed products that have um, the, that record these kinds of stories. And so it's a lot more online. It's a lot more immediate and it's a lot more atomized with lots of people kind of shouting into the wind. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm going to take a little trip in the way back machine because there's nothing, a a tired old, um, somewhat losing, losing capacity climber likes more than good nostalgia. And when <laughs> I first started climbing, even just picking up a guidebook, oftentimes when you would pick up one of these old classic guidebooks, I mean, we can even like rewind a little bit more. There's a long history of mountaineering and climbing throughout the world. But in America, climbing as a recreational end to itself and then thus becoming um, a career for some people didn't really start happening till the 1980s. And um, I would say 1980s probably is a fair assessment of that. I started climbing in the early 90s, I think. And it was just starting to proliferate and the guidebooks for well, let's call them like small objectives, like single pitch climbs or, you know, just day long routes versus exceeding like week long alpine or mountaineering trips. You would pick up these guidebooks and there'd be this rich history of how climbing developed in the area. And oftentimes like a particular route for the area would be really well described, who put it up, how it went up. There was like actually a lot of historical information in the guidebooks. And fast forward to now you get um, a list with a some boxes that you can check whether you on-sited flashed or red pointed and for all you non-climbers out there that's how we climbers would designate whether we did a route first try with no information 
first try with some information or took us multiple tries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just one aspect of it. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I guess what I'm thinking of right now is just how, for me, writing and climbing were kind of grew as like uh, parallel interests in my life. And, um, you know, I would, I studied abroad in New Zealand in college and and learned how to uh, alpine climb and mountaineer in the Southern Alps down there. And after those, you know, initial trips into these giant mountains that were just so powerful and incredible, I, you know, being someone who's introverted and disagreeable, you know, I needed to, I needed to um, find a way to express and understand this experience that I just had. And so writing was this natural outlet for me to try to put into words um, and just kind of make sense of these incredible experiences. And I think that, um, you know, if I had had Instagram or something like that at the time, then, you know, you'd, you'd be limited by the 2000 character word limit that follows with social media. And, you know, you'd, you'd post some amazing photos and you'd say some nice things about it. And then it would kind of be gone from your memory with the click of a button. And that's kind of how we, we, we ingest media now in general is that we see, you know, if you, if you're like me and you follow lots of amazing climbers on Instagram, you see hundreds of incredible photos in within 15 minutes of just looking at the app and they're on your screen for only as long as it takes your thumb to flick across the screen and so both the um, creation of media has gotten um, has I feel like there's less attention and and um, diligence put into the work of trying to you know bring that experience to life for other people but there's also less attention being paid by the the consumer of the media where you, it's as simple as a thumb flick away to just get to the next, um, the next hit, the next, you know, dose of, uh, of climbing stoke or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I think that just in, as a fellow, um, old and irrelevant has been, who's, uh, you know, prone to being nostalgic about, um, the, you know, days 20 years ago, I think it's, I'm, I'm right there with you that I miss, um, I miss being able to sit with, uh, sit with something and, and think about my own experiences, but also read and really immerse myself in the stories that other people were telling. Yeah. And that, that immersion part is really lacking both from the, um, like just the casual user experience and, um, you know, like back when you were working at uh, Rock and Ice magazine and for example, I might've been like a contributor to a magazine or someone, you knew people were on trips doing things in places, but you didn't get this like immediate everyday report or update of what was going on. So you'd kind of be waiting for that four to six week period while someone's like generating a trip report, going back and forth with an editor and if you were a contributor, you're actually also learning how to express your experience better because we all have the experiences that are in our head as I'm prattling on now doing exactly what you might do in an, a contributor editor situation where you're just like vomiting out these ideas and then someone's like, okay, well, what about this? And like refocusing it and really making like a nice story for people to read and remember. 
Yeah, certainly. And there's also this other element of it, which is that, you know, editors and journalists were sort of gatekeepers in some sense of being able to divert and direct the discussion and discourse and show, you know, kind of divert people's attention toward the thing that was important and give, give a certain hierarchy of what was important and what wasn't as important in terms of the context of the history and understanding what the, you know, the sports history and progression and so forth. And that's really been lost with um, social media where every um, story is sort of given the same um, imp sense of importance or it's certainly measured differently in terms of how people engage and like what they like and what they show uh, they're paying attention to. I'll give you one quick example, which is um, recently a woman, um, she's not a climber, but she kind of has had claimed this mantle of being the first woman to visit every country on earth, um, which was news to the, you know, the 80 year old woman who had done that, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever. And, um, and so uh, that, you know, she, she was, she had kind of built this like, uh, impressive Instagram following being being this woman to claim to have had been the only one to visit every country in the world when this has happened before and either she didn't know or people there were no journalists or or editors you know creating the media that would have been able to put her 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 story in context and so um, it, it's we're kind of living in a, a free for all of of information where details and historical accuracy and context and all of those things are very easy to miss. And, um, and uh, you know, I think actually this woman is being sued by um, some travel agency that had used her story in, in that way because of basically she misrepresented um, the, the, the context of what she had done. So I think there's um, there's also that aspect too of just having, you know, legal, consequences for not knowing or misrepresenting yourself in a way that's very self-serving. I would also say that that travel company probably should have done their due diligence before they just immediately jumped on the bandwagon, which we see happen a lot, you know, across yeah. all forms of media, regardless of what the story is and whether it's outdoor recreation or politics or whatever. Um, yeah, you recently also wrote about um, a sport climber, um, I'm, I've already forgotten his last name, Seb, which tells you something about, you know, I didn't even know this person existed. I haven't been following the world of climbing maybe as much as I used to, but um, he did a landmark route in his home country. And as you write about, it was like the kind of thing that's just like, okay, well, here it is on my screen. And with one flick of my thumb, it's gone. But it was one of the most groundbreaking routes to happen in recent times. And in 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it probably would have been a magazine cover and a feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Seb Bouon, he's a French climber um, from Southern France and he, he established what might be the hardest rock climb in the world, which is certainly big news if you care about rock climbing. Um, but I noticed that, you know, he announced this on Instagram and within, you know, within a week or a day, even, you know, people were talking about other things. And so it sort of didn't have that, um, you know, it didn't have that sense of, you know, wonder that is that fo should follow any kind of 
limit breaking or you know record setting achievement um and so it is really hard to it's 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 on the one hand it's easier for lots of people to have a voice and to share their stories and perspectives and i think there's something to be said for that but on the other hand it's really hard to know what is worth paying attention to and what's important and um i think that has the potential to um to to be something of a loss um for our our just our collective and shared sense of wonder and celebration and and just appreciation for someone like like Seb who who you know who potentially just did the hardest rock climb in the world yeah and like I said I haven't like I wasn't even on my radar at all which is not you know to say that it should be but um I feel like in a time past especially in the the small and previously somewhat insular community of rock climbers we would we would have all just know like we'd be taught hanging at the crag like oh did you hear about seb's route holy cow hardest route in the world i feel like it would have been more just part of the water cooler culture of climbing yeah 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 absolutely um yeah and you know it's it's just another square on instagram that you just flick through and then it's it's gone from your memory and it's in within with just that simple thumb flick but then on the other hand, um, are we just being um, mired in the mud nostalgics who w want to hearken back to um, what was comfortable and the, you know, de rigueur for us, whereas perhaps, you know, the generation now is like, oh, okay, you know, that's cool. On to the next thing. And the flip side to this whole coin is um, it does provide just like you could talk about a streaming music service like Spotify or um, whatnot. A lot of um, artists feel like they are undercompensated for their work being streamed. But on the other hand, you have artists whose work may have never been otherwise heard um, coming to the forefront. I've had that experience a lot recently with streaming music services where I'm listening to these dudes from like the 50s and 60s who are just these Slayer guitar players that you would have never heard of because they didn't get their you know, little pressed singles played on conventional radio. So they were lost to obscurity and now they're resurfacing. And I think the same could be said for outdoor recreationalists who some kid who might not be getting, you know, rock and ice might not answered their phone call, but maybe Instagram does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is true. I mean, there's, there's always going to be a subset of people who want to do the work to dive into the history and, and get the context of the routes that they've climbed and understand who the first ascensionists were and what their stories were. And they're going to have to work harder to dig through the archive of, you know, of literature to understand those stories because they're not as sort of readily available now. Um, you know, I used to, when I first started climbing, I'd go into the local gear shop and they had a little couch um, right by the door with stacks and stacks of, you know, 30 years of climbing magazines. And I'd just sit there for hours at a time and, and just pour through them and read, read a different, you know, just randomly pick an issue and, and dive into that month of that year. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I, that, it was important to me just to have a context for understanding this sport, but it was also, it just drew me into it in a way that made me more connected and made me want to be a climber even more. And so I, I do feel sad for people who don't 
do whatever that equivalent is these days. And, um, you know, as, as maybe we want to talk about this, but the, the climbing and rock and ice magazines were the two premier, uh, climbing magazines in the United States, um, have both recently gone out of print. Um, they still have online footprints, but the, the, there's, they're no longer printing magazines. And so, um, at this point forward, you know, 2022 onward, we're going to be living in a world where there is no printed record of, of, um, of our sport. Yeah, we still have um, the Alpinist, which is an amazing magazine. And we almost lost the Alpinist at one point. But the Alpinist is named the Alpinist for a reason. Its job is not to uh, keep up with what's happening in sport climbing or bouldering. It's got a mission to serve a different part of the sport, which has become so diversified. And even the footprint, the digital footprint is like one footprint now because they're basically one magazine. And it again, it probably seems trivial to someone looking in from outside the sport. But if you expand your view to, you know, like losing bookstores to Barnes and Noble and then losing Barnes and Noble to Amazon and then losing everything to Amazon. You know, it's like, it's the first step in that direction of just coming up with generic, as we like to call it, clickbait, regurgitated, sanitized blips that might get your thumb on the screen. Yeah. And I and um, I also don't want to paint a picture that's all doom and gloom because there's this other side of this equation that has been really interesting to see in the last few years, which is a different business model emerge where individual content creators and writers and podcasters are have the tools now um, to fund themselves and also a culture of people who are willing to support them um, via models like Patreon uh, or Substack. Or, you know, with Evening Sends, I'm able to take subscriptions just through my own website. And it's, um, you know, it's an it's an interesting new model that I, I, I'm not sure how sustainable it is because you end up paying lots of, you know, spending your money in so many more places than you would otherwise. But to me, it's a really compelling alternative because it removes the thing that everyone hates, which is advertising. And it creates a direct connection between someone who's working hard to create something worth reading or listening to or thinking about or um, appreciating if it's art. And, um, and I personally have found that to be so um, energizing for me as a, as a writer to know that, Every day when I sit down and, and type out a new article, I'm doing it because I'm indebted to the people who have are subscribing to my website and who support me. And um, even if they don't agree with what I write, I know that the conversation is going to be one that's, you know, uh, thoughtful and interesting and, you know, comes in good faith. And um Whereas, you know, if you go the, the opposite way of, of, you know, going to seek advertising support to fund your podcast or your website or something like that, you end up talking to lots of people who have no investment in the climbing world, who are there to check boxes, um, uh, demographic boxes that they can, you know, show to their bosses, that show that their advertising dollars are being well spent and so forth. And it just kind of feels soulless. It doesn't feel like there's any 
purpose to what you're doing. Um, so I, I enjoy that model. I'm, I'm worried that it's not going to last forever. Um, but it, it's a really compelling thing to consider that, you know, being reader supported, being listener supported is, is the, is the way to go. Apparently I am going to get cut off at 40 minutes. So <laughs> I might just have to, um, restart in okay. minutes. Um, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but I guess they've gotten a little bit more strict about the 40 minute. Usually policy. they might, they might just say, well, we'll see what happens. They might say, do you want, we'll let you keep going, but yeah. You, you Yeah. Sometimes they let, they, they don't cut you off, but if we could do get cut off, we'll just reset. And yeah, you can, you can meeting me. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So that just like, of course, just killed my train of thought. Yes, there is definitely, um, it's inevitable that there's a positive and a negative side to this. And um, for example, the availability of seeing top level, whatever's athletes, um, movie stars, if you're into that kind of thing, dancers, providing content into like, well, you know, this is how I train for this competition, or this is how I train for this route. So now we as consumers, or as producers, if we have something to share, we have this audience that we can share what we really want to share, not what an editor might think is interesting. And as consumers, we have access to these resources for educating ourselves to become better at whatever it is we're doing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that it's also, um, you know, this, it's, it's allowed me, you know, cause I subscribe to all kinds of podcasts and, you know, writers and who I follow on Substack and give them, you know, whatever it is, 50 bucks a year. And it, that model of, of, of media consumption is in some ways it's, it's, um, it's very, it can, it can kind of, cre you can create your own bubble in a way, uh, which I think is something to be aware of as a media consumer is. So I try to follow and support people who I don't always agree with as well in order to break out of that, that bubble. Um, but whose content I think is high quality, even if they're, views are different than mine um i like seeing uh so I, I don't know i think it just allows for that opportunity to be really selective and sort of you know create this like um atmosphere of of interesting content for yourself that you know will challenge you and and entertain you and and, and keep you interested yeah it's definitely um i mean i find myself maybe consuming a little less than I, it's like all things, you know, at first it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, oh, we finally moved away from these horrible online forums where people just sit there and uh, ridicule or, or uh, criticize each other. And now we've got this great content that seems to be more positive. And then all of a sudden we have this content that just never ends. And how mm -hmm. do you, it's almost like, you know, the training apps that we have for um, the climbing walls these days. And we have the one company who, who has the benchmarks that people mm -hmm. can have like a consensus of what is actually good and what is actually like on point for what you're trying to train for. And then we have these other apps that are just like, there are 80,000 problems for you to sample on this app. And I'm like, okay, but where are the ones that have 
some consensus that there's quality here. And I almost feel like I need something like that with like the social media aspect of outdoor recreation media these days. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose there's like some kind of digital hygiene that you need to undergo where you clean out your Instagram feed and unfollow all the people who are boring to you. Um, <laughs> but sometimes so, you see something critical in like that yeah. random thing that they stuff in your algorithm and you're like, oh, right. I would have never found this on my own. Yeah. That's true too. I've found increasingly that in the Instagram algorithm has been showing me more and more from people who I don't follow. And it's sort of pissing me off to be uh, frank. Um, because uh, what's the point of following people if they're just only going to show me stuff from people I don't follow. And so that's been annoying me lately, but that's maybe a different issue. There's probably some um, deep uh, advertising issues, but I will say, um, pro hack for anyone who's out there and is frustrated with social media if you're using it on your phone or whatever and you actually use the annoyingly clunky native site on a web browser you actually don't get any advertisements or um, suggestions you just get what you actually allegedly signed up for so oh, okay <laughs> and I'll if you're giving people stories you don't get advertisements in between in between the little stories for all you people out there who um don't use social media. I'm sorry that uh, we're talking about things that are a little bit nerdy and let's just call it what it is. Bougie problems here with. I've called Instagram uh, QVC for millennials. It's it, because it's kind of become this like shopping. Um, you know, you, you get the, the bug planted in your head that you need that this like kitchen knife or that cute dress or whatever it is that shows up on your feed and you end up finding companies that you never would have known about but it's also you're clearly being manipulated by um, an algorithm to to you know spend your dollars that you might not have otherwise spent that day and so um yeah i don't think that's that's good um even though you might be happy with that that purchase that you made right so full disclosure as long as you are aware with every every like or every unfollow or follow that you're being manipulated by an algorithm that is going to change things down the line that's why i'm always leery about liking a particular song on a streaming service because it's going to create an algorithm mm. or youtube or whatever yeah my spotify feed is currently totally messed up because um my uh children I have two young daughters and uh, they've they've liked a bunch of like horrible songs that I can't stand like Baby Shark. For any parents who've uh, heard heard that awful song, you, they'll know what I'm talking about. And um, I actually had to like sign up for a separate Spotify account just so that my kids could could have their Baby Shark feed and it could leave my my uh, my hippie jam bands and, and hip hop feed alone. <laughs> keep your keep your tiny little sugar covered thumbs <laughs> off of my algorithm <laughs> oh boy but it is so funny um well yeah okay so you've got two young kids who are growing up um they won't know a life that existed before digital devices are you um are you concerned about how that might affect or influence their outdoor recreation or learning experiences 
Yeah, I mean, well, on the one hand, I'm I'm worried because of what I've been reading about this now. And but on the other hand, you know, when they become teenagers, it'll be an entirely different world. And so it's it's hard to forget or easy to forget that Facebook and Instagram are, you know, whatever, 10 years old or less. And so we haven't been living with these um these algorithmic weapons in our lives for very long. And uh and I, I'm hopeful that um that there are people who are working on that problem of mitigating the effects um, that seem in particular to be really bad for teenage, teenage girls and their, their, um, you know, their sense of self-worth and, and body image and so forth, which Instagram in particular is, has been shown to be really bad for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, of course I'm worried about, I'm worried about lots of things for, for my kids in the future. And, um, you know, there. On the one hand, you don't know what the future will hold, but on the other hand, there's there's just very universal and perennial life lessons and approaches to leading a healthy, content way of being, and you know, and that a lot of that involves the the, the things that climbing teaches and the things that being outside teaches and self reliance and so forth. And so we do all of that you know, we go climbing all the time, we go camping and, and so forth. And I'm hopeful that that is a, is a good foundation that protects them from, from uh, any kind of social media destruction they may face in the future. Well, and as a child of the 80s, um, I can tell you that uh, long before Instagram existed, we had Elle magazine and Vogue magazine and whatnot that did just as sufficient of a job, um, making especially young girls feel, um, inadequate and not pretty enough, not thin enough, not whatever enough. So I feel like that's going to be an ongoing battle for the thing that's particularly pernicious about Instagram. That's different from the, um, the airbrushed and Photoshopped Vogue models of, of your youth is that, now um, those models are your friends and your peers and your classmates who've used filters to make themselves look far, you know, different than they do in real life. And so, and it's also this direct social peer, um, you know, interaction that makes people feel particularly inadequate or um, about themselves. And so it's, um, I think it's, it's much worse. It's, it's a similar comparison, but it's, it's far more um, detrimental and destructive to, to the minds of kids. Well, and widespread. And um, as we previously discussed at your fingertips, if you have access to um, digital media, it's at your fingertips 24 seven, not just um, once a month, which, you know, you could still look at that magazine every day for, the entirety till another one came out but yeah anyway making me feel old because um airbrushing does anyone even know what that is anymore <laughs> i'm sure they have different words for it now <laughs> they have different mo- words like just they call it a like improvement filter or something like yeah that. beauty filter so um the other funny thing that i think and i don't want to say this in like um, you know, to sound condescending towards some of these people, but, um, well, let's back up a little bit when you and I, again, in, um, our self-perceived golden age of, um, outdoor recreation media, where, um, content was 
maybe a little bit more thoroughly considered before it was issued because it had to be printed and that was an expense and there are only so many pages in a magazine or whatnot. Um, as a climber or as an athlete, you know, you, we existed in this world where um, you had arrangements, which we were fortunate. We hit that gap where you were able to have arrangements with companies at both a grassroots level or at a full sponsorship endorsement level to use their products. Some people got paychecks, not so many in the early days that grew, but as a grassroots athlete, you were able to possibly supplement your income by getting some content. So if you got a photo published in a magazine um, or if you were in a commercial or something like that, then all of a sudden you fast forward to the digital revolution. And I'm sure at first the outdoor companies must have just been like, this is fantastic. So not only now do we offer a grassroots program that oftentimes the climber or whatever athlete would pay for, but now they have to provide the content instead of being reimbursed and possibly getting to stay on the road a little longer and finish their project, they are providing content. And it's kind of onerous because how are you taking pictures of yourself when you're actually doing the activity? So that always confused me. And then you fast forward even more, I'm throwing a lot at you right now, um, to everybody's an influencer. And I'm like, how are there so many good climbers I've never heard about or mountain bikers or whatever? And you kind of go a little deeper and you're like, wait a second, this person's like red pointing 511, which I'm not trying to sound dismissive about red pointing 511, but how is that influencing my sport? Yeah. Um, well, so as you point out, there is this new shift in, in the way that advertising dollars are spent and it's, it's, it's built up what we call the influencer economy. And the what you're kind of pointing to in in this model of advertising is a really interesting idea that I don't think many people have considered, which is that this is such a good deal for the companies. And they've done lots of studies that show, you know, if you have like a million bucks or something, you could give that million bucks to someone like Kim Kardashian or some big name person who, you know, will do one post on Instagram that will promote your product. Or you could take that million bucks and give it to, you know, 10,000 young people or people that you've never heard of necessarily to, to become quote unquote influencers and do the same thing. And they've, they've realized that that's like a way more effective bang for your buck. And so that's really what the economics are that underlie this shift. Um, and to your other point, it's, it seems like a good deal if you've basically been climbing for two years and there's some company wants to give you free shoes and do 10 posts on Instagram. It sort of feels like no big deal. Like you're not actually, there's no real work involved in that it sort of seems obvious. Why would you not do that? And, and for many people it is, I'm not, I'm not going to disparage them for making that choice, but the, the thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that formerly companies pay um, advertising agencies to come up with creative ideas about how to speak to people in an authentic way. And, um, you know, they hire professional videographers and photographers to go out and make the, the, the advertising assets that tell that story. Now they're just kind of saying, why don't you just go be yourself and do what you do? And we're fine with that. And it's so much more, um, 
authentic and so much better. So it makes sense for companies to do that. But people don't realize how much value they're they're actually giving to those companies. And in my opinion, they're getting shortchanged on in terms of compensation and acknowledgement for what they're what they're doing for these brands. So there's that aspect to it, which is I feel a lot of people are being exploited by companies. Um, the other aspect is that I'm not sure people realize or necessarily are aware of the fact that they're signing up to become basically a tool for a company to spout advertising messages. And it changes their personality. It changes their approach. It changes the way they think about their relationship to the sport that they love. And I have seen firsthand examples of numbers of people who are given these opportunities to become quote unquote professional climbers early on in their careers when they're, you know, maybe not the best climber in the world, but they bring other, you know, relevant attributes that speak to the demographics that um, companies want to target. And they feel suddenly inadequate and they feel like they're not, they're not climbing 514 and 515, but they're, they're trying to be, they're trying to play the same game as those people who do climb really hard or do really, you know, audacious things in, in climbing. And so I see, um, I don't know, I just see how that changes their, their relationship to climbing. And I don't think it's always, it's always better. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, imposter syndrome that they struggle with. They, they feel like they're inadequate, like they're not, they don't deserve to, you know, get a thousand bucks or whatever from, from whatever mm-hmm. brand it is or free shoes or free clothing and so forth. And, and so I think that's bad too. And I think people should be able to talk about that more openly and, um, really make that calculation. Uh, do I want this for myself? Is this going to interfere with what, how I, um, my relationship to this sport that I want to do for the rest of my life. And that I really love, because if it, if you burn out, you know, early on, you don't get to do that. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm like babbling right now, but that's, those are my thoughts in response to what you just said. Well, and I, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of train of thought that goes on with these conversations because oftentimes there is no right or wrong answer or solution because if you want to solve something, it has to be a well-defined problem. I'm not sure we have defined a problem, let alone well-defined a problem as much as just mulling over the changes that we are seeing in our sport and what it's brought to our sport. Um, And that does also go hand in hand, you know, chicken or egg with the explosion of popularity of this sport. And again, back to our nostalgia, um, we started in climbing at a time where it was still a lot more fringe, wasn't as fringe as it was during like the sixties or whatever. But um, I remember going to crags and wondering if I would see another female and oftentimes I wouldn't. And now um, you go to a crag and you wonder if you're going to be able to park in the whole, like, am I going to be able to climb today because there's no parking available? So the dynamics of our sport has changed tremendously. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. (laughs) You go. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. Climbing gyms, uh, you know, have exploded in the last 20 years. You know, we've gone from 
30 years ago, there were 90 climbing gyms in the country to there's about 600 of them now. And, um, and so millions of people are being introduced to the sport through gyms and they're, it's just, we've gotten to a point now where there's, uh, the most recent outdoor industry association report showed that there was, um, gender parity between uh, men and women in sport climbing. And so I think that that's like a, a milestone to celebrate that, um, in you know, participation, the, gender parity, as far as participation. Yeah. Yeah. And participation, um, in, in the, in gym and sport climbing, it's a, it, it, the numbers are a little bit different in mountaineering and trad climbing, I think. Um, but at least in, in terms of gyms and sport climbing, um, you know, there was, we're about 50%. Actually, I think there was a slight, um, edge given to, to women on that. So, um, which is a good thing. And, you know, it speaks to your, to your observation about wondering if you were going to see another woman when you go to the, the crag, you know, 20 or 30 years ago to now, you know, being almost certain that there's going to be strong representation among, among the two sexes. And, um, obviously growing, as you know, as a parent growing with children as well. Oh yeah, totally. As we look down the line, um, what are your, your hopes and fears for our upcoming generations with, um, the explosion of the sport and the explosion of digital media and how we can use it wisely. And can we bring back this um, robust tradition of fantastic writing and trip reports and whatnot that previously existed in our living rooms full of 30 years of climbing magazines? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, my, I guess my fears uh, about the sport in general before addressing the media aspect of it is that I'm concerned about the the capacity that our outdoor climbing areas have to hold the influx of the new population that's coming outside and oftentimes isn't necessarily the most savvy or aware of how to be outdoors responsibly. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little concerned about that, about just um, the way that more people coming outside is going to engender more land regulations and management and potentially crag closures and so forth. And so I'm, I'd say that's the biggest concern facing climbing right now. Um, in terms of creating a vibrant and robust, uh, you know, literary tradition, carrying that forward into the new uh, media landscape in climbing, um, I don't know exactly what the solution is there other than to just try to create a place for that on the internet or through little one-off zines that you make or something like that um, to just inspire people to sit down and like read about what it is that what what it is that they love and um, and to also be encouraged to think about writing um, about their own relationship to climbing um, and you know that was kind of the spirit behind my website that I started was I, I started this um, department on evening sends called the day I sent, which is um, a place for climbers to write about the day that they did a meaningful route. Sent means like they did the route. So, uh, and I've gotten tons of great essays um, from people who 
appreciate the opportunity to do something that goes beyond an Instagram caption that talks about their their success and draw from different corners of their their lives and the people who were part of their journey and story with that one route. And um and I get lots of great feedback from readers who read that. And so I hope that, you know, I'm I hope that there's more people who are inspired to create that kind of immersive media. And I'm sure there will be because great stories, well, first of all, climbing is just filled with great stories. And so those great stories are going to need a home. And so where those, how that, what that home looks like, whether it's digital, whether it's print, whether it's on social media um, is going to change always, but um, the, the craft of telling great stories is not going to change and what those great stories are is not going to change. So um, I'm confident in one sense that we'll continue to have that rich tradition of, of storytelling, but um, I'm also, you know, yeah, I encourage anyone who, who wants to pursue that to f- come up with new ways of creating space and avenues for people to, to do that kind of deep, deep work. I think you're right. I think something will emerge and it most likely won't be um, what we've been accustomed to in terms of things that lay on our coffee tables or whatever. But I feel like there will always be a pool that will have a desire to to share more than um, than some quick hits. And wow, you summed that up so eloquently. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about this today. And I will tell you KZMU listeners that um, as always, when we upload our shows to the KZMU website, we provide links to any of the things that we talked about in the show. So there will be links to Andrew's website, Evening Sends, and there will be uh, links to any of the other things that people might find interesting listening to this show. Andrew, thank you so, so much. This has been a great conversation and um, I hope to have you back on the show again someday talking about maybe our future with access and how to treat our public lands to keep climbing open for future generations. Oh, absolutely, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Um, This pleasure is all mine. You can catch Great Wide Open on the KZMU Airwaves every second Monday of the month at 4 p.m. Archives are at kzmu.org or on your podcast player at KZMU Public Affairs.